Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Robin Buller, your host. Today we're joined by Sarah Hirschhorn, author of City on a Hilltop, American Jews and the Israeli Settler Movement. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, this is fantastic. Before we begin, could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, how you got to where you are now? Sure. Um, I'm born and raised in Western Massachusetts um, in a very Zionist and um, traditional family, um, became increasingly um, religiously observant um, as I was entering my teenage years. But for the most part, I would identify really as someone who came from a strong Jewish and Zionist home. Um, My parents had thought about um, immigrating to Israel when I was a teenager, and we spent quite a lot of time living there uh, off and on um, throughout my high school years, including a full year that I spent in Israel my junior year of high school um, at the American International School. And while my father was um, uh, working at an Israeli law firm. And so I had a lot of, um, uh, I had really kind of a dramatic encounter with with Israel at a very tumultuous time in its history. Um, I spent that year in high school um, right after the assassination of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, which was sort of a generational moment. I think it was the equivalent of what people might have said in my parents' generation of where were you when Yitzhak, um, when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. For me, I think the Rabin assassination was a similar kind of turning point, and it was really a firsthand exposure to the Israel-Palestine conflict and um, what we later came to realize was going to be the end of the Oslo peace process. And returned to the United States, went through university and graduate school, um, and was very interested both in um, American Jews that have moved to Israel, partially from my own life story, and also this encounter that I guess I had through the Rabin assassination with Israel's radical right, you know, the assassination by a right-wing um, activist. So these two things sort of began to come together um, in graduate school um, in thinking about where, what direction my professional career might take. I wrote my master's thesis on Rabbi Meir Kahana, um, who was known as a, you know, firebrand ultranationalist activist, both in the United States and in Israel. But as I began to think more about him and his story, which, you know, has been covered fairly succinctly in the historiography, if though there's certainly more work to be done about him um, in his various roles, both in the United States and abroad, um, I began to really think about, you know, here's really one, one, one person who has, for better or worse, sucked up a lot of the oxygen about Israel's uh, radical right and about the ultranationalist camp and certainly about American involvement um, in the Israeli ultranationalist movement. But I wanted to think a bit more widely in terms of a doctoral dissertation um, about a much larger group of individuals that I came to understand were having an impact on the development of the Israeli settler enterprise. My parents, um, as a child and as a teenager, were subscribers to the International Jerusalem Post. And I remember that we would sit on the couch on Shabbat and you know, flip through the letter to the editor section. And I would often see featured these letters from people you know, who would sign their names as Bob Goldberg, 
um, Efrat slash Brooklyn, New York, or Sandy Cohen, Los Angeles slash Tacoa, or these kind of uh, what I what I came to see is these sort of Americans that had a dual identity, both as U.S. citizens that had strong attachments to wherever their city or state of origin was in the United States, but were also clearly living over the Green Line. So I began to think to myself, you know, what was the story of this larger group? At that time, I had no idea that it was upwards of 60,000 individuals that were living in the West Bank today, but I did realize that there was something of a story here of a larger cohort of Jewish American immigrants that had moved over the Green Line and had a significant influence over the development of the Israeli settler movement. Fascinating. So who who are these American Israeli settlers then that you're focusing on? Could you give us a little bit of a profile? Right. So that was the first challenge of my um, of my book was really to determine who are these people? Um, I think that the media and the scholarly literature are full of stereotypes about who we think they are. Um, and those range from being messianic zealots to neoconservative Republicans in the United States or um, some kind of, you know, fringe ultranationalist activists. And I really wanted to investigate whether that caricature of this constituency was true. Was this truly the, you know, origin story of these individuals or did their demographic profile look like something quite different? Um, My research primarily focused on the first generation of Jewish American immigrants who moved over the Green Line um, roughly between 1967 and 1980, which is the height of Jewish American immigration to Israel as a whole. And, you know, certainly the um, apex of their activism within the Israeli settler movement, um, you know, in terms of at least population statistics. Um, And what I found was, you know, quite surprising to me and certainly contradicted this stereotype that I think I and probably many others have had in mind. Um, You know, if I ask the average American, uh, American Jew today, you know, who's the first um, American Israeli settler you can think of? I think the response might be Baruch Goldstein. And my question was, really, are these people all Baruch Goldsteins or is there something much more... um, um, complex about their demographic profile. And what I found was that it was really, um, that was exactly the case, that these were young, um, uh, highly educated, something like 10% of them hold the doctorate, upwardly mobile Jewish Americans that had everything going for them in the United States. Um, They were also the highest Jewish identifiers of their generation, um, highly came from traditional, if not necessarily orthodox homes that had both, you know, strong Jewish and Zionist values and and institutional attachments. Um, But perhaps most importantly, were also creatures of their, the generation in the 1960s and 70s prior to their immigration to Israel. These were people who had voted for the Democratic Party and had been active in and sympathetic to the social movements of their day, including the civil rights struggle um, and the movement against the anti uh, movement against the Vietnam War. So they were not, you know, um, they were not necessarily those that we might have thought of as being people who had been uh, solidly in a right wing or even ultranationalist camp, um, either in the United States or in uh, upon their immigration to Israel, but rather these were people who came from left wing backgrounds um, who brought what they consider to be both liberal values um, and tactics over the green line. And as you discuss in your book, it's, you know, it's a difficult topic to, to research. It's a difficult subject for a scholar to address. So how did you go about doing your research? Well, I think that this um, finding makes people uncomfortable um, for a variety of reasons because, um, you know, objects in the rear view mirror are sometimes closer than they appear. And for a generation um, coming uh, out of 
you know, the 1967 war and the social movements in the 1960s and 1970s just tell them that, you know, these were people who are active in the same causes and came from the same background as you, but took a radically different direction um, in their life um, can be challenging both on a scholarly and a personal level. Um, I think also it is sometimes more comforting to, um, you know, locate the center of the conflict in the settlements um, and to suggest that settlers are somehow vastly different from other kinds of Zionists um, or even, um, you know, non-Zionists and to suggest that, you know, these are kind of messianic, violent fanatics engaging in a certain practice, um, you know, both ideologically and tactically. And then everyone else is is, is quite different. Um, and to suggest that, you know, settlers often have, at least American settlers, um, you know, share the background, uh, both ideologically and generationally of many other people of their cohort, I think, um, can be disturbing to both, you know, the image of settlers themselves which, you know, have become quite fixed in time and don't really represent the settler movement of 2018, which perhaps we can talk about in a moment, but also to, you know, their, their um, you know, to others um, who are active along the political spectrum to say that actually there's something that all of these people share in common, whether they really like it or not. Right. And so, and so what were your methods? I mean, how did you go about finding information on these people? Yeah, so I'm an historian. Um, so, um, you know, it, Working with, um, you know, living history um, poses certain kinds of challenges for those of us who want to gaze upon the Israeli settler movement um, and the participation of Israeli American Israeli immigrants within it with some degree of objectivity and perspective, um, historical perspective. Um, you know, contemporary history is very exciting, but it's also very challenging to contemporary historians. Um, and um, I had to try to contend with that by finding the kind of sources would provide me both the breadth and the depth necessary to tell this story um, um, as well as I could, given the limitations of, um, of, of basically a story that's still unfolding as mm -hmm. we speak. Um, so my first category of service sources are, were from archives. Um, I think that, you know, the traditional historian um, really first, first port of call is always the archive. And luckily, um, you know, despite questions about declassification, which are very challenging to historians of modern Israel today, and more generally, um, you know, uh, just, uh, you know, questions of access of all different kinds. Um, I was able to find quite a lot of um, uh, material in the Israel State Archives, as well as the um, kind of informal archives of the Jewish Agency for Israel, um, which told me quite a lot about the development of, of various settlements and groups of Jewish American immigrants that had um, immigrated over the Green Line from the United States. Uh, the second category of sources that I relied upon, especially when archival sources were either unavailable or have not yet been declassified, which is, you know, Israel's declassification law um, extends for, um, you know, 30, 30 years. So, um, you know, anything basically after the early 1980s has not yet um, been declassified in Israel. Um, mm. 
So I was able to work with Periodical Press, which was both the general periodical press in the United States and Israel, especially, you know, Jewish and Zionist press, but also certain niche publications that had been written by and for Jewish American immigrants in the occupied territories. They were especially useful for trying to understand, you know, the mindset, the ideologies, um, and the discourses of these activists um, in their own time and place. And the last resource, of course, was interviewing. This is something I think that is still controversial for historians that, um, you know, there are many parallels of oral history, and um, there's kind of a preoccupation in the historical profession about what role, if any, um, interviewing should play in the writing of um, contemporary history. But I think I would say that I'm solidly on the side of, you know, interviewing and basically live subjects as being a good resource um, while taking into account that we need to balance, um, you know, the questions of oral history with more traditional sources like archival, archival material and periodical press. Right. Yes, me too. <laughs> um, and so your book is divided into three case studies and, you know, they're, they're different cases, but they're connected thematically. What would you say is the main argument that's holding, holding these chapters together? Well, it's holding the three case studies together is really how, um, you know, um, it's, it's a story about change over time. Um, you know, tracing mm-hmm. the history of these settlements generally from, um, you know, the early 1970s until the present and how um, the liberal values of American Israeli settlers came to clash with what I call the settler realities, especially after the first intifada. So it's really about um, how people, historical actors really come to face to face with their own history um, and changing realities um, as they encounter them in, you know, in real time. Right. And so let's start with the first case study, Yamit, which is a settlement that's located on the Sinai Peninsula, you said. So who were the American Israelis who founded it? And how does this settlement fit into your argument? So Gary Yamit was founded by um, a cantor and a nutritionist from Cincinnati, um, Ohio, and a group of other Americans that they recruited from all over the United States, but especially, um, you know, parts of the eastern seaboard that were along the coast that appealed to those who might want to settle settle in a, you know, kind of seaside retreat in the Sinai, like Florida and California. Um, they gathered together a group of individuals in the early 1970s, around the time of the 1973 war. Um, at that time, the Israeli government had already had plans in place to develop Yamit as um, a uh, commercial and residential um, city that would support a nearby military base that possibly was also going to be a covert nuclear weapons depot. Um, And these Americans heard about the project from a shaliach or an immigration representative um, in the United States, and they decided that they were going to dedicate themselves to the project um, and, you know, dreamed of building a kind of utopian community on the sea um, that would allow them to participate in building a new city really with their own hands. I mean, there are photographs in the book of them building the first prefabricated homes. Um, you know, people, people who had been, you know, cantors in a former life who were suddenly, you know, becoming construction engineers. Um, And this was really their dream. What they didn't perhaps realize was that the Israeli government was really somewhat less keen about a group of idealistic white-collar Americans who had dreams of opening a bagel shop um, on the sandy shores of Yamit really coming to participate in this settlement enterprise. Um, And much of the story between, you know, the early 1970s and um, 1977 is about the struggles of this group to be included and, um, you know, really... uh, 
have a strong role in the building of Yamin. Um, and, you know, there's it, like it's a story of waves and there's, you know, there are peaks and troughs to this story. Um, but what really um, brings the, the, the narrative to a screeching halt is the 1978 uh, or the beginnings of the 1978 um, Israeli-Egyptian peace accords, which would require the full civilian and military withdrawal of the Israeli um, of Israel from the Sinai Peninsula and see the destruction of the city of Yamin and many other adjoining Moshevim and Kibbutzim um, in the spring of 1982. Um, so from then on, it was kind of a, a story of paradise lost for these Americans who had had dreams, both of um, a kind of bottom-up peace between Israel and its neighbors, as well as their own desires for self-realization that were really very much uh, effaced. Um, like a sandcastle on the seashore by um, a peace process that was much bigger than themselves. Right. And how does that compare then to your your second case study, which is Efrat? And it's possibly the most well-known of the settlements that you discuss. What does this case study tell us about the American-Israeli settler movement? So first of all, for sure, Yamit was probably the least known of the three case studies of the book. Um, I don't know how many people really knew about American participation in what you know was primarily known as a uh, Israeli and native Israeli and Russian Israeli enterprise at the time, and really in its memory going forward. Um, but Efrat is a very different case, one that was you know highly recognizable both to American and Israeli audiences as being a kind of American outpost in in, in the occupied territories, um, as well as a settlement that had a very different experience when it came to the peace process, one that has always self-consciously built itself within the Israeli consensus, mostly because of the location of Efrat, which is in the Gush Etzion, or Tree of Zion region of the West Bank, which has had a sort of long history in the Zionist narrative as a site of um, of previous settlement before the 1948 war, um, and Efrat is being part of a larger sort of revival movement um, in that region after the 1967 war. And so Efrat has had less of a struggle in some ways of, um, you know, trying to define its role within um, the future of an Israeli-Palestinian peace process, while at the same time has come into conflict with its Palestinian neighbors, um, especially since the first intifada, and has had to really, I think, look very deeply uh, into the clash between, you know, the liberal values of some of its founders, including Rabbi Shlomo Riskin, and the realities in which um, this he and his parishioners found themselves in this corner of the West Bank. And then let's talk about the third case study as well, and then we'll, we'll try and we'll put all of these together as you do in your book. Um, your third case study is Tekoa, which is a settlement that you described as more remote, but um, activist and also kind of riddled with conflict. Uh, what's significant about this settlement and its settlers? So today I would say that, you know, Tekoa in some ways, um, while, you know, certainly is... Um, you know, is in a very vulnerable situation in, in the case of a future final status agreement because of its location um, and, you know, determination about whether it would be evacuated as part um, of the consolidation of settlement blocks. In some ways today, cause is as much a victim of its own success than that of the peace process as it's grown very quickly and um, really overcome many of the obstacles which characterized um, its earliest years. Tekoa was founded by a group of American Jews, primarily from the Upper West Side of New York, um, in in um, in collaboration with Russian-Israeli immigrants who were already in Israel in the late 1970s, and it was started um, as a deliberate symbol of. Um, um, 
ultra-nationalist activity in the age of the Israel, Israeli-Egyptian peace accord, which was supposed to have a Palestinian autonomy track. And for these, um, for these individuals, for them, it was a staking a literal, um, a literal as well as a metaphorical claim to the land uh, in this kind of remote corner of the West Bank at this very delicate moment of negotiations um, to really assert not only their own self-realization, but, um, you know, a stake in the future of, um, you know, what they saw as the state of Israel and as a Zionism. Um, and of all the case studies in the book, the the um, settlers at Tekoa have experienced the most violent um, and contentious arrangement um, with their Palestinian neighbors, which started already in the early 1980s uh, and has lasted basically until today. Just yesterday, there was attack at the gates of the settlement of Tekoa, which um, apparently injured one of its residents. Um, and this has really very much characterized the nature of um, Tekoa's existence of one that has both on the one hand been um, in constant friction and um, often, you know, uh, conflagrations with its local Palestinian neighbors, as well as um, a kind of alternative to peacemaking um, among settlers themselves as the home of Rabbi Menachem Fruman, a native Israeli settler who became um, the rabbi of this community, who was well known for his religious peacemaking efforts with those like um, Yasser Arafat and even Sheikh Ahmed Yassin of Hamas. So on the one hand, it has been both a place that has been quite hard line and on the other hand, rather dovish in its you know, attempts to um, create a kind of bottom-up peace between settlers and Palestinians over the last um, three decades. So at the beginning, you talked about how the the theme connecting all these case studies is um, is change over time, and you also briefly mentioned um, you know settlements today in 2018. How does your study fit into the new direction that we see settlements going? Well, I think that first of all, the first chapter of the book is really about um, trying to place um, American-Israeli settlement within the context of what I call the 1967 moment. So, really trying to um, go back in time to what the origins of this new brand of American Zionism has been about, um, and to um, you know try to move forwards from there as that, and in defining that as being sort of a critical. Um, a critical starting point and to try and really rethink what um, the 1967 moment meant to American Jewry, both then both then, and, then and now. Um, I guess where this the project is going is part of what I hope will be a larger research agenda that tries to look at the diversity of ideologies, constituencies, and discourses within the Israeli settler enterprise. Um, I think if you know you flip on your average um, you know uh, cable television news show today, or even m- good parts of the scholarly literature um, and media, are really um, frozen in time with this image of the settler as being this um, you know ultranationalist activist on a wind webbed hilltop of the West Bank, um, you know, clad in a, um, you know, knitted kippah and hippie-like clothing, you know, toting some kind of assault rifle, that looking, you know, scowling, scowling into the distance at his Palestinian neighbor. I mean, I think, you know, every day when I flip on the BBC and they show me a clip of settlers, that's basically what their image of the Israeli settler movement looks like. But, you know, the, the settler movement has really changed dramatically since the 1967 war and the first decade of, settler, of, of settlement, which was, was characterized primarily by activists from Gushemunim, the Block of the Faithful, um, a messianic movement dedicated to living in the whole of the land of Israel. But today, you know, that's only something like 10% of the Israeli settler enterprise. Um, um, the demographics of the Israeli settler movement have changed dramatically, something like upwards of 
Um, you know, half of Israeli settlers today are Haredim, ultra-Orthodox, um, ultra-Orthodox migrants who are looking for cheaper um, places to live in large, large settlements along along the Green Line. Another large percentage are economic settlers who also want to have, um, you know, a cheaper a cheaper house and better quality of life, maybe only living miles from their jobs in high tech in Tel Aviv. Um, there are many other religious, ethnic, um, and immigrant constituencies within this very diverse mosaic of the Israeli settler movement today. And I want, you know, this spotlight um, of my book may be only on American Israeli settlers, but I'm hoping it will be part of a larger research agenda that looks at many different, um, you know, many different groups, subgroups, ideologies, discourses, and constituencies within this, you know, complex and dynamic movement today. Right. And and speaking of larger research agendas, what uh, what's on the docket next? What are you working on? So what I'm working on next is um, I uh, if my first book was really about um, the impact of the 1967 war on a generation of American Jews um, and following um, a small cohort of them over the Green Line. The bigger question, I think, is a much larger study of what happened to all those Jews that stayed home after the 1967 war, but still had to live with these dilemmas of universalism and particularism, their new affiliation to the state of Israel, their larger understanding of what Jewish identity was in the diaspora with or without Israel after the 1967 war. So I guess um, the next book is really trying to understand, um, you know, basically what happened to the whole group of people that stayed home. Um, and my sort of radical hypothesis right now is that the 1967 war somehow made diaspora Zionists into white people. Um, and that this whitening of diaspora Jewry um, shattered alliances that, um, you know, both Jewish and Zionist communities had had on the left. Um, created a new kind of Judeo-Christian establishment on the right, which really hadn't existed before, and a lot of polarization in between. So it's kind of trying to understand the history of American Jews and, um, from 1967 to the present from a slightly different angle. At the same time, I want this to be a comparative study, um, and with the understanding that you know whiteness of, of Jewry is not something that only happens to diaspora, diaspora Zionists in the United States, but to global Jewry. And in particular, I'm interested in the case of South Africa, because in South Africa, um, Jews are white people because apartheid has classified them as white. Um, and I want to use that uh, in some ways as a tool to understand, um, you know, how this is affecting global truly more broadly. So what I'm hoping in a kind of very ambitious way that I hope I'll be able to actually execute, this is going to be kind of a transnational study of diaspora Zionism post-1967 um, and to try and see um, if we can explain, um, you know, some of the situations that I, I see, you know, that my students, you know, tell me about today, and I certainly see in the media, um, you know, when Linda Sarsour may say, you know, you can't be a Zionist in Black Lives Matter, or, you know, Zionists aren't really welcome in the feminist movement, or, um, you know, why are we seeing Morton Klein, you know, hanging out with Steve Bannon? I think that um, a lot of these phenomenon, both the right and the left, are not really contemporary um, changes, but the result of a process that began after the 1967 war, and, you know, trying to account for the, um, you know, change over time that has happened, um, you know, in various in various segments, um, uh, you know, in the last 50 years, it really brings us to the story that we see in the headlines today. That sounds like a really interesting study. I look forward to, to hearing about where it goes. Yeah, I hope so. I hope I can pull it off. <laughs> so, you know, I hope all your readers are listening or rooting for me. 
<laughs> no, it sounds it sounds fascinating. Sarah, we've taken up a bunch of your time. Um, I know it's late for you. Thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I look forward to hearing more about interesting books that are coming out of the Jewish Book Network soon. Great. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> Thank you very much.